Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. Today we will continue our study of the kingdom of heaven and what it is like. We are going through the parables and Lord willing, we'll probably finish chapter 13 next week, but cover a couple more today. Um, It has been an encouraging study for me and I think the providence of the Lord having it happen at the time that it did for us with having the Chinese students here uh, was very encouraging and seeing how God is building his kingdom all over the world and how he does it in ways that we just don't even plan. Uh, Two months ago, didn't even know they were going to be staying in their house, and yet in God's providence, they've been here, and they went back with Bibles, uh, English and Chinese Bibles, and both in there, and Lord willing, they will read their Bibles, and uh, I know one of the young girls that was uh, with us, that was staying with us, We had given the Bibles to her, and she started reading immediately and turned to Genesis 1 and started reading. I was like, great. Go God, right? So we'll see what the Lord does with this, and thankful that he is building his kingdom. So question, now what is the priority in your life? What, why do believers do what they do? Why do we sacrifice our lives Uh, for our families, for our neighbors, for our community, for the rest of the world? Why do we uh, work ourselves to uh, tears? Uh, Why do we lay down our lives for our neighbors? Uh, There were a couple of times last week where I think I could have fallen asleep standing still if I wanted to. I was so exhausted. Uh, Why do we do these things? Why do we continue to try and and make effort and, and, and put ourselves in positions where We are sleep-deprived and uh, tired and spending all of our money and spending all of our resources. Why do we do what we do? Today's passage will tell us why. Our passage today and the parables today will tell us why we give our lives over and why we sacrifice everything for our King and our Lord. The primary answer for these questions is the same. It's for Jesus, right? It's for His kingdom. It's for the advancement of his glory, for the advancement of the the kingdom. We want more and more people to believe in him and become citizens of the kingdom to come. Today we continue our study of this kingdom of heaven found in the parables in Matthew chapter 13. Just to give an overview again of this whole chapter, you see it as it unfolds. The setting is found in verses 1 and 2. And then Jesus launches into these parables, the parable of the sower. In verses 10 to 17, Jesus gives the explanation of why he uses parables to his disciples. This obviously didn't happen while he was in the boat. This was afterwards. And then verses 18 to 23, Jesus explains the parable of the sower itself. So one parable, you'll see, the parable of the sower, he explains, and he explains it in details to his disciples so that they understand. They are given ears to hear, 
and an understanding of these truths. Then in verse 24, we see the parable of the wheat and the tares. Most likely, this happened on the boat. He was talking from the boat still, giving those parables. So it's kind of, Matthew's kind of jumping around in time. He goes forward and sometimes explains what, what the parable means. He did that later on. Jesus did that later on, and he brings it into the story. And he goes back to the parables. Again, and as Jesus is presenting these parables on the boat, he gives the parable of the wheat and the tares. We talked about that one last week, right? We then are given in verses 31 to 33 two unexplained parables on the kingdom. Again, he gives these parables probably on the boat too. But there's no explanation in the passage anywhere down below of these two parables. He just gives the parables. Then we see he, the narrator himself, Matthew, explain, it gives an explanation in verses 34 and 35 of why parables were used by Jesus. In verse 34 and 35, we see that Matthew kind of repeats some of the same concepts that Jesus had repeated to his disciples at a different point. You see, it's not really going in chronological order, is it? It's kind of explaining... And the reason is, is that he wants the reader to understand the parables more. He's trying to give the big picture for the reader to understand it more than telling you exactly sequentially down through the order over what had happened. So in 34 and 35, Matthew gives explanation of why parables were used. And then in verse 36, notice the parable of the wheat and tares is explained. That's where the explanation is given where Jesus explains what the parable of the wheat and tares. Again, verses 31 and 33 through 33 are two unexplained parables. He doesn't explain them here. He just does the explanation for the wheat and tares. Now, so last week when I preached it, if you remember, I preached the parable of the wheat and tares, and I talked mostly about what? The explanation of the parable. So I'm kind of jumping around a little bit too now. So it makes it really confusing if you're not following along with us. Okay? But I'm doing this so that you understand what the parables mean. So that we know what the kingdom of heaven is like. Because that's the main point. We want to know what the kingdom of heaven is like. Now notice in verse 44 and four through 46. There's two more unexplained parables. Two more unexplained parables on the kingdom. He doesn't explain them. There's no explanation for them. And then finally, there's this parable of the dragnet found in verses 47 to 50. And of course, what does Jesus do? He explains it. He explains that one. Why not those other two? Why not the other two before that? And then verse 51, Jesus has a questions to his disciples and gives an explanation to his disciples. So very interesting how this all unfolds, right? The parable of the sower was about what? It was about the word of the kingdom is received by various different groups of people, different types of people, the different soils. Remember, the word of the kingdom is thrown out there, and it's received by four different types of people. What was it pointing to? What was that parable ultimately pointing to? It was pointing to the sovereign work of the sower to produce fruit in his followers. This was the sower, and he was working. And as he proclaims the word of the kingdom out to various people, 
Some get it. Some embrace it shortly, but then fall away. Some embrace it, but then the trials of the world choke it out. And then finally, some really get it, and they understand it, right? And they embrace it, and they produce fruit. It explains how the Word of God is accepted by some and rejected by others. Again, this is part of the kingdom, isn't it? The kingdom word, that it would go out. The message of the gospel will go out and be accepted by some, but be rejected by many. The parables themselves were the illustration of how Jesus revealed truth to some, but not truth to others. He kept it from some, but not others. In verses 10 to 17, he explains that. Then last week, we looked at the parable of the wheat and tares. We saw that the Lord's economy, the way he governs things, in that, in his economy, he has established his followers to grow up beside unbelievers. That there will be both believers and unbelievers, and they will be growing up right beside each other in the world. We saw that this is God's sovereign plan, that, the, that he would do it this way. His followers were symbolized by the what? The wheat. And those who rejected him, or the unbelievers, or the ones that were followers of the enemy, were symbolized by what? The tares, right. And the promise of the parable itself was that a final separation and judgment would come. And that there would be a discernment or a final judgment that would show who are the wheat and who are the tares. And it might not happen for a long time. It might not happen until the kingdom comes back. But at that point, we will know who's with God and who's against God. Who's with Christ and who's against Christ. But right now, the two groups are what? Growing up side by side in the world. They're near each other. You can even have them in their own family, right? You can have believers in the family and unbelievers in the family, and they're living right by each other. But one day, when the king returns, and he sends his angels to reap the harvest, he's going to show what is the tares and what is the wheat. Today, we will cover more of the parables Jesus gave to illustrate this kingdom of heaven and its influence on the world. The four that we're going to cover today, however, don't have an explanation. We're going to cover the four parables that don't have an explanation. So what do we need to do? We need to be very, very, very careful. Because if we don't explain it properly, we might be putting words into Jesus' mouth. And he doesn't give me what it means. So what do I need to do? I need to be very, very careful. You pray, you're praying for me, right? And you prayed for me all week that I make sure I get it exactly right. If you didn't, please start. I don't want to put Jesus, words in Jesus' mouth, right? The authority is found in what he said, not what I say. I want to know what it says and what it means, not what I think. Jesus assumes here, however, if he doesn't give the explanation, what does it mean? It means he assumes the disciples can discern what it means. He knows that they can get it. He knows what we can, that we can get it if we will spend time and we will study and we will 
Seek him, there will be understanding. These four parables, we'll see, all help to explain the kingdom of heaven to Jesus' disciples. The four parables explaining the kingdom of heaven are, first, the parable of the mustard seed, verses 31 and 32. Number two, the parable of the leaven, verse 33. In verse 44, there's the parable of the hidden treasure, and then in 45 and 46, the parable of the costly pearl. Okay, so here we go. We dive into these four parables. Notice, you will see as we go along, the first and the second parable in verses 31 to 33 are closely related. They're very similar. They help you to understand what they mean because they're in context right beside each other and they point to the same concept. Second, verses 44 through 46, the second two pair are related also. So they help us to understand what they mean. So let's start with the parable of the mustard seed. Look at verse 31. Look at verse 31 in your Bibles. Notice, he presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds. But when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air may, came, and nest, came and nest in its branches. Notice again here. Jesus started with the phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. It's very important, right? This tells you ultimately what this is being compared to. This parable is being compared to what the kingdom of heaven is like. This means we can understand more of what the kingdom of heaven is like by understanding the parable. We see in this parable that the kingdom of heaven starts small, but it becomes noticeably large and has an impact on the world. We're going to talk about that as we go along. It's important to note that the references within the parable are changing in every parable. Now, I want you to listen very closely because if you don't listen now, it's going to get very confusing because we are jumping around in parables, okay? And the wild thing is, remember I've shown you a, a picture of what he was talking about and then showed you the relationship to it and showed you what it means? Now, what really gets confusing is, is that often seeds mean humans. Sometimes seed means words. And then seeds can mean something totally different. The kingdom itself. Now, how do we know which one? You know what? It takes discipline, study, and thinking, and meditating, and stopping, and slowing down, and understanding. This is very, very important. Notice, the seed in the parable of the sower was the word of the kingdom. The seed in the parable of the sower previously, three, four weeks ago, was the word of the kingdom, the word of God, the revelation of the kingdom. While the seed in the parable of the wheat and the tares were the sons of the kingdom and the sons of the evil one. That was the seed. And here we see seed represents the whole kingdom itself. It's the whole kingdom. 
This adds to the disguising nature of the parable, doesn't it? Now, I want you to put yourself for a second out on the shore. Jesus is on the boat, and he's talking and telling these parables. (laughs) And as he tells the parables, he's not giving you explanation, right? And when you get the first one, you're saying, okay, maybe I can figure this out. Okay, so seed, maybe seed is maybe the word. It, it, it it, 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 It could be the word. Then he changes to a new parable. And you don't get the explanation. And now it's seeds are all over the place and some of them are wheat and some of them are tares. Wait, the word can't be, the word can't be tares. That doesn't make sense. Wait, I don't even know what this means. And then the next one, it seems as though the seed is like a mustard seed and it's, it grows up to be something big. What's he talking about? By the way, if you didn't have any of the explanation of the other ones, would you know anything about what Jesus was saying? You probably wouldn't, would you? By changing the references to what the seed is pointing to throughout all the parables, he has basically done what? Made it confusing. Made it so they can't understand. Oh, can you imagine a sermon like that, beloved? Think about that for a second. You come in, you sit down, and you say, the pastor stands up and says something, and then he just says something that totally is different. It seems to be opposite. It makes absolutely no sense. And then I turn around and I say something totally different again. Can you imagine coming to every sermon that I ever listened to from that point on in your life to the rest of your life, and all you heard was confusion? Boy, that wouldn't be a seeker-sensitive pastor, would it? What would happen? I'm fairly sure that if I preached a sermon every week, and at the end of the sermon you went, I have no idea what he's saying, you probably wouldn't be back for very long, would you? Would you leave? I mean, let's be honest. How many of you would leave if you didn't understand a word I was saying by the time I finished? Why would he do that? This man does miracles by Satan. Do you remember? Judgment has come. Judgment has come. The Jews were presented their Messiah and they said... No. He's doing miracles by Satan. And Jesus has begun the judgment. That's shocking, isn't it? But it is the way he is. He's righteous, isn't he? This is what the Father, by the way, had ordained for him to do. So ultimately, how he speaks even begins to be the reason why they do what? Kill him. Wow, isn't this amazing? Why is he doing it this way? You're not going to like this answer, some of you. Because he's God. 
Is God allowed to judge people when he wants to judge people? Yes, he is. Is he required to give any of us in the room mercy? No. He's begun to judge the people for their rejection of him. He said the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. He begins to speak in these parables and it is judgment on them. I want to give you just a warning, just a warning. Listen to me closely. Those that have been walking and hearing the truth of the gospel for years and years and years and years. Maybe you haven't yet bowed the knee. Maybe you have not yet said, I'm a sinner. I need Christ. Maybe you have not turned to him yet and embraced him. Here's the warning. God's judgment is coming. You say, well, that's not a fun message to preach on a Sunday morning. I love you too much to not tell you. He is a just and righteous judge. You need Christ. Turn to him. Not tomorrow. Don't wait. Because, you know, doubt and unbelief. Now, I'm not talking about that struggling doubt that we have, but I'm talking about the doubt where you say, this is not true, that, un- that I reject the truth. You keep doing that for long enough, and then guess what will happen? It will become like these parables to you. Do you understand what I mean by that? The word, it will be preached, and it will go in one ear and out the other, and you won't even understand anything of what's being said. And then there will be a day where you will say, you know what, I don't really need this Christianity thing. Oh, please, beloved, don't be like the Jews that saw Jesus and rejected him. You're getting some clear explanation of these truths. Embrace it now. Turn to him now. Bow the knee to King Jesus. It also says something to us as believers. Listen closely. Is it always easy to understand the Bible? No, it isn't. It isn't. You know what it requires sometimes? Work and discipline. You know, it's amazing that we will put our minds to many, many other things, but to actually understand the Scriptures, sometimes it falls way down on our list, doesn't it? You want to understand what the parables mean? Guess what? It takes a little bit of effort. You want to understand why the Bible says what it says? You need to study, beloved. I'm not saying this to slam you, make you feel guilty. I'm I'm telling you that this is the way the Word of God is. The Word of God is set up to reward those who diligently seek Him. And it is a Beautiful results. Do you understand that last night as I was finishing up my sermon, I'm sitting here going, wow, this is amazing. This is glorious truth. But you don't arrive at that without work. Have you had those moments in your Bible study? Have you had those moments where you're studying and you're like, I don't get this. I don't understand this. Why is it this way? Why is it that way? But you keep at it. And you fight at it. And you work at it. 
And you're like, well, maybe it's this. And then you put it down that night and you say, Lord, I have no idea what this means. And then you go back to the next day and you look again. And you don't understand it the next day. And you put it down and you go back to it the next day. And then there's some things that you don't even really get an answer. And you don't really understand it for weeks. Sometimes months. Sometimes years. But you keep at this book. And then it comes. And you see what I'm talking about. And you see the glory of our king. And the kingdom. And you go... Wow! (laughs) This is amazing. Have you had those times? They don't come with a lack of effort. It comes by studying and meditating and memorizing and pursuing and agonizing. In the scriptures. So I'm going to give you the four reasons for these, the four meanings of these parables. You're getting a shortcut. You're getting a shortcut. Beloved, don't take it for granted. And don't think that I'm always going to be there for you. You know what the job of the pastor is? To teach the sheep how to feed themselves. Do you hear me? I'm a horrible pastor if you rely on me to explain everything to you about God's word. That's a bad pastor. A good pastor is one that gets their sheep in the word and they study on their own. And if something happened to me next week, you'd be just fine. That's what I want. That's what King Jesus wants from his sheep and his citizens. People that study and pursue him on their own. That was free. Let's keep going. I do believe that's an implication from the text, isn't it? That he doesn't give the answers to the parables. So, the mustard seed appears to represent the kingdom of heaven itself. It has the appearance of something very, very, very small. Actually, one of the smallest seeds... Of the garden of that day. Very, very small. Look, there's a picture of the mustard seed. That's small, isn't it? You see, that's a finger. You can see the you can even see the fingerprint. It's very small. That's a mustard seed. So in what ways was the kingdom of heaven small? Well, I believe Jesus is pointing to the beginning of the kingdom. The beginning of the kingdom. Ultimately, it was started with who? Him. Him and his work. The kingdom was started with him and his work. He was relatively unknown and an obscure figure in the world stage at that point. Very obscure. Just a little, a carpenter's son. Right? Just a common man. He was relatively unknown. In fact... He would die a common criminal, as a common criminal, rather, even though he wasn't innocent, right? Die as a common criminal outside the city on a, rock, on a cross. Considered what? Nothing. A cast off. 
Useless. Even family members wouldn't go watch and see a criminal crucified. They would shame him, shun him. Insignificant. He would have followers, but they would be few in number, especially at the time of his death, right? A matter of fact, at his arrest, what happens to all of his disciples? They scatter, they flee. He's nothing. He's insignificant at the point of the beginning of the kingdom. Here is the king. He's dying. And he's relatively obscure. I looked it up. Did you know in China, during that time, there was probably around 60 million people? In China. So this is just a... And he was unknown in most of the world. Didn't even know who he was. It was the start as like a mustard seed of the kingdom. In comparison to the world, all that was happening, the kingdom and its followers were only a handful of common people. Some fishermen, a tax collector, a few farmers, some ladies who were rejected by most of the culture. And yet, it becomes one of the largest trees of the garden of that day. It's a parable. It's a story. It's showing it starts small, but it becomes enormous, large, giant. The kingdom started with relative obscurity, yet... Like the mustard seed, the kingdom would grow into a large group of people. And that hasn't this been shown to be true? Think of it. Billions of people probably now are a part of this kingdom. That's great truth. That's amazing. Over the history of the church over the history of being added to the kingdom, how many millions and millions and millions of people have been added? All because they believe in this king that died outside the city in relative obscurity. Wow, this is how God works. I love it. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it beautiful? You see, he, present, he presents his parable and he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sown in the field. He's the mustard seed in a sense. The kingdom is the mustard seed that begins with him. And this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it's larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree. The number of kingdom citizens is multitudes of multitudes. Read, your, read Revelation, you'll see it. Myriads of myriads, thousands upon thousands, millions times millions. Lots of people. As Barnabas stated just a few weeks ago, the kingdom is growing even today in places of relative obscurity and he's building his church, isn't he? And the citizens of the kingdom are being added to everywhere. This is the nature of the kingdom of heaven, beloved. Why? Why from relative obscurity to countless multitudes of worshiping citizens? Why? Because it is the kingdom of heaven. 
It's the Lord's kingdom. And this is what he's doing. He's building his kingdom. He is sovereign over the hearts of men. He's able to change the leopard spots. He's able to make dead men live. He's able to take the least a small group of followers and turn it into a giant multitude. And we're all going to worship with them. This is so encouraging to me. Oh, this is encouraging. It should be encouraging to you too. I confess, I kept preaching this message to myself for the last two weeks as, I, as we hosted these Chinese students. There were times when I asked this question, what am I doing? <laughs> Discussions I had where some of the students wanted, to absolute, wanted absolutely nothing to do with me or the Lord or the Word of God. And at times even wanted to mock me. I even heard, like I said, I heard some mocking saying, God is good, God is great. And then he began, one of the students, began to use God and his name regularly. I was like, no, 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 no. And not in a way that you would want it used. I'm like, no, 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 don't do that. Don't talk like that around my children. You need to show respect to God. Oh, yeah, God. (laughs) There were times where I was like, what is going on? Why are we doing this? This is nuts. But God is building his kingdom. He's building his kingdom. And like the parable of the sower, I had to keep spreading the word of the kingdom, didn't I? I needed to keep doing it. Whether some, the evil one came and snatched it right away, or whether it was an emotional, yes, I like it. One of the kids, one of the kids became, said they were a believer at one point, but then asked two or three more questions, and no, I'm not a believer. So it was like, oh, I don't know which one you're really saying, and whether we can even communicate. What do we have to do? We have to trust the king. We have to trust him, and he's building his kingdom. And the coolest thing about these kingdom parables is it shows there's this side to the building of the kingdom that's unexpected. It's kind of mysterious. It's happening, but it's not like what you would expect. It goes against your expectations. Do you see this? The smallest seed can't be the largest thing, right? It can't be a great kingdom that he's building. But God is building his kingdom. And he's putting wheat. He's making sons of God. The good news is is God's making his kingdom and his followers. And we all should do what? Worship and proclaim him. This great kingdom is far greater than even we know, beloved. It started in obscurity, but now it already includes myriads of myriads in every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group. There's millions of people around the world. So the question is, you're in this room, you've heard the kingdom parables, you've heard about the king, are you one of his citizens? Are you one? Do you bow the knee to King Jesus? If not, today's the day. You need to turn to him. 
Do you live for Christ? Do you proclaim the word no matter what? Do you proclaim it with boldness? Are you afraid? Are you bold for the king? Do you share him with others? Do you enjoy him daily? Are you part of this giant mustard tree that's being built? That's producing fruit of worshipers of the king? The image of the tree here that is big enough to be a home for the birds is probably a reflection that Jesus is having back on the Old Testament picture of a great kingdom. Because it's mentioned in Judges 9.15. You don't have to write all these down, but you can look at them later. Judges 9.15, Ezekiel 17, Daniel chapter 4. All of them talk about birds being in a tree, talking about a kingdom that's so large that it's like a tree where birds can hatch a home in. So it's important that he's pointing to this idea that it's so big, it's growing, it's enormous, it's large. But the main point is, is that it had a tiny beginning. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was relatively insignificant at the time. Yet, y'all realize, 2,000 years after the fact, you're sitting here in a room worshiping somebody that died and rose from the dead 2,000 years roughly ago? Isn't that amazing? What a good God that he would do this. Whole nations were forming at the time, but God was starting his kingdom. The smallest of seeds would grow into one of the largest garden plants. This parable, notice, is closely associated with that next one, the parable of leaven. Verse 33, he spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. So what's the picture? What's the picture Jesus used? It's leaven being poured into flour. Leaven often is is in the form of yeast. It's added to flour. You understand that your flour doesn't rise unless it's what? Self-rising flour, and then therefore they already put the chemical in it, right? But most flour doesn't rise. You cook it, and it's flat. But you put things like baking soda in it and baking powder, and you put yeast in it, and it will then rise, won't it? The interesting thing is, is it creates a chemical reaction in the whole mixture, and a gas is formed. A gas is formed in the mixture, and this is what makes our cakes and our cookies and our breads rise. You don't have self-rising flour, and you make your your stuff, and you don't put any baking powder or baking soda. It's going to come out flat as a pancake. But you put just a little bit, a little bit of yeast or leaven, and it makes the whole thing grow. And here he uses, he mentions three pecks of flour. Now, is that a small amount or a large amount? Did you know that that is 35 pounds of flour? That's a lot of flour. So what's his point? Just a little bit treats a whole bunch. Makes a whole bunch of leavened flour to rise. Does that sound familiar? It sounds just like the other parable, doesn't it? It's the same exact way. A very small amount of something has transforming effect on a large amount of something else. The kingdom of heaven had a relatively obscure beginning, but a subtle yet large transforming effect 
on everything else. The small amount of leaven permeates a large amount of flour and transforms everything. So as one commentator stated, the kingdom produces substantial results out of proportion to its insignificant beginning. I'll say that again. Listen real closely. The kingdom produces substantial results out of proportion to its insignificant beginning. In other words, something that you would think is insignificant does something that's not expected. It makes something great and big. And you say, what is the big deal with this? Why is he making this point? Because I want you to listen very, very, very closely at this point. I do believe Jesus is pointing to the behind-the-scenes nature of his work to build his kingdom in the world. Not only was the beginning obscure, but even the continued work is not fully noticed until the time of Revelation. And it's important, listen, we all need to remember this when considering our service of the king. God takes the smallest of acts to produce some of the greatest of work. Say, wait, 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 let me think about that. Explain that to me. This is the way God works. Now let me tell you why he does this. Listen closely, pay attention. Why does he take something so small and insignificant to then do something great with it? And show this amazing thing. It's unproportional. It doesn't make sense. It seems opposite. You would think if you wanted to have a great big kingdom, what would you do? You would send lots of people. You would start it with a giant invasion from the heavens, right? You'd start it with King Jesus coming back with all of these people and all of his angels. And he'd come in and he would just clean clock. And he'd establish his kingdom. And it would be a great and mighty and powerful kingdom, right? But God does it the opposite. God does it the opposite. Here's the amazing thing. I I wish I could do this. I would do it. This is so amazing. I want to do it. I want to do it. Come here. Come here. Joel, come here. Joel, can I have you for a second? Come here, brother. Thank you. You sang good. You're going to be a great illustration here. Ready? Ready to go, Joel? Come on up here with me. Turn around. God took a little boy just like this, and we are all here. Because a little boy came into the world. He was this big at one time. He grew up. He started with something so small. What does it do to think that Jesus at one time was this size? The God of the world was sometimes this, at one point was this small. Just like this little guy. You're doing great. Good job. And now we're all here and there's millions and millions of people in the kingdom because he started with one little guy. Thank you, Joel. You can go back to mom and dad. 
What does it do? We go, wow, God. Don't we? We go, wow. You took something relatively insignificant and small and are making this great kingdom. Who gets all the credit? He does. We say something like this. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Don't we say that? Turn to Psalm 8. It's consistent with God's character. It's consistent with His nature. It's consistent with who He is. It's consistent with the God of glory. He's worthy of worship. He's worthy of honor. Look at Psalm 8. Oh, this is beautiful. Look. O Yahweh, O Lord, our Lord, our Adonai, how majestic is your name. Majestic pointing to his kingship in all the earth. Who has displayed your splendor above the heavens. God has shown his splendor above the heavens. Look, look, watch, look. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. What is that? God in his sovereign ways demonstrates his glory by taking some of the smallest things to put down what? His enemies. He takes the most insignificant thing and makes it great. To put down his enemies. What is God doing? What did God do with Jesus Christ? He brought the little baby into the world that grew up in perfect form. Died on a cross in order to make a giant kingdom of citizens. When I consider the heavens and the works of your fingers. How large it is. The moon and the stars which you have ordained. What is man that you take thought of him? Now what's his point here? As immense and as great and as big as the universe is, he takes the smallest things, what? Man. Humans. Do you understand in light of the immensity of the universe? Y'all know, if you study for just a second how big the universe is, you, you just stop for just a second and realize how big you are compared to the bigness of the universe, and you say, what? I'm smaller than a mustard seed compared to the rest of the world. He takes something, the enormity of the universe, and he did what? He takes man, and he blesses man, and he makes man rule over his creation. Wow. So here's here's the point. When you look at Psalm 8, and you look at this, and you say, see, he made man to rule over the works of God's hands, and he made man to have all the animals and take care of all the animals and do all this. He made man to do this. Do we end this psalm and we go, hmm, let's worship man. Now, that would be foolishness, wouldn't it? Be, uh, that would be absolutely insanity, wouldn't it? But do you understand that that's what the rest of the world does? Because all other religions do what? They exalt man. No other religion exalts the creator God. They all exalt man. But we who get it, 
We who understand this great truth, we do what? We worship God. Because he takes relatively insignificant people like us and he puts us in his kingdom and he makes us to rule over the world. We co-rule with Christ. Oh, doesn't this make you want to jump and shout and scream? Way to go, God. Which is exactly what the psalmist does at the end of the psalm. After meditating on it, he says, Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He praises God. And if we've seen that the character of God is consistent with this, the mustard seed makes perfect sense, doesn't it? We got through two of them. Aren't they good, though? Do you see his point? Beloved, do you understand? Do you understand what it is? What a privilege it is that you are even a citizen of his kingdom. Do you understand? Do you understand what a great grace it is that you understand this parable? And that you know who the king is. Why do we do what we do? Why do we sacrifice for people? Why do we endure persecution? Why do we open our house up for people to come into our house? Why do we show hospitality? Why do we serve our brothers and sisters? Why do we do it? Because we're a part of the kingdom. And we know our king. And to do anything else would be foolish to us. Because we count it a great privilege that we are his ambassadors. And we get to proclaim the king to this world. This is why we're here. This is why we do what we do. Because King Jesus, though relatively obscure at the beginning, is the Lord God who is making his kingdom. And one day he will return. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your kingdom. Thank you for these parables that show us your majesty, your glory. We worship you. You are consistent. You are transcendent. You're unapproachable. You're infinite. You're infinite. Your glory makes us awe. We worship you. Use us now, King Jesus, for your glory. Help us to spread the word of the kingdom to others and build your kingdom as you are doing so perfectly around this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.